So let's pray right now, and then we're going to dive right in. Thank you, Lord, for uh, our time of worship. Thank you that you uh, receive our worship, and, and we know so because we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ through full faith and trust in him. And so God, as hopefully the worship has now set us up to receive your word, we pray that you'd speak to us through your word. Uh, help us to understand rightly that which we're going to look at. And uh, Lord, may we be men and women of integrity and live out what we learned today as well. So we just commit this time to you in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, uh, since I've had kids, I've been brought back to many of the stories that I read when I was a child. You, you remember them, stories like Jack and the Beanstalk, Little Red Riding Hood, The Three Pigs, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, Hansel and Gretel. These are all the uh, stories I've told my kids over the years, and it's been a few years now. And as I've uh, told these stories to my kids, I've been reminded once again why I like them so much. You see, they're simple, cute stories, and most of them contain an easy-to-understand moral lesson that we want our kids to get. So take Little Red Riding Hood, for instance. Uh, don't talk to strangers, especially wolves, right? Isn't that what the kids kind of take from that? Or how about the three pigs? If you build something or set your hand to do something, do it right or it might not last. Or how about Goldilocks and the three bears? Don't trespass or invade other people's properties. I mean, all of the stories that we tell our kids are simple stories, and, and, and they're stories that have some type of message for them. And the stories that we tell them are universal. Almost everybody knows them and their pedagogical messages. They're cute. They're simple. They contain a small kernel of moral truth. They're kids' stories. And now, folks, for right or for wrong, the story of Jonah and the whale is considered by many to be in this category. It's a story that we tell our kids. We tell it in a cute way. Almost everybody has heard it. And somewhere, we even might attach a moral lesson to it. As many of you know, I didn't go to church when I was a kid very much, and yet I heard this story about Jonah and the whale early on, and I lumped it in like so many other people do with all the other fantastic and cute fairy tales that I heard when I was a kid. Jonah and the whale, it's kind of right up there with Goldilocks and Little Red Riding Hood. And yet over the years, now that I've become an adult, and a Christian, and a pastor, and a student of the Bible, i got to tell you, I have seen the book of Jonah in a much different light. I've realized that it's not just a cute, simple story, but it's a rather profound, spiritually and psychologically complex story. And it doesn't have just some little moral message on how to live life, but it's a deeply practical set of truths on how to walk with God and listen to Him in the midst of a nutty and fallen world, even when our hearts do not want to listen to Him. In short, folks, I've realized that this little Old Testament story is written more for adults than it is for kids. And though it surely is a story that we're going to want to tell to our kids and paint little pictures about, it's a story that as adults we would be very, very foolish and remiss if we weren't to look at it closer for our own lives as well. Because as we're going to see over the next few weeks, it contains loads of truth that we all need to live life to the fullest and to truly know and love God. And so with this said, I want to introduce you to the book of Jonah this morning by answering, asking and answering a couple of key questions that many people have had about it as adults over the years. And probably the first and most obvious question that people have about the book of Jonah is, did it really happen? Did it really happen? And what you need to know is that the answer to this has been debated over the last 2,000 years. 
Uh, Some argue that Jonah is a classic parable, which you find a lot in the Bible, an untrue, fictitious story that has a spiritual point to it. While others argue that no, it is a historical account, which you obviously also find in the Bible. Uh, Gregory of Nazianus, a 4th century leader, and Martin Luther, the great Lutheran reformer, both held that Jonah was and is a parable, an untrue story that has a spiritual point to it. While John Calvin and other church leaders said, no, it's a true historical account. And so as you can imagine, we get both liberals and evangelicals on both sides of the fence today when it comes to whether they see Jonah as a parable or whether they see it as history. And though I do see this as an important issue when it comes to this book, and I'm going to give you my opinion here in a minute, one of the things that we need to recognize right off the bat so that we don't get confused about this book is that both those who see Jonah as a parable as well as those who see it as an historical account, get this, tend to get the exact same meaning and message out of the book. It's true. In other words, in the commentaries that I've referenced over the years on the book of Jonah, whether they be more parabolic ones or historical ones, they tend to say the same thing as far as what the core message is about Jonah. So whether you see it as true or fictitious, you will most likely get the same clear and life-giving message that God intended. So don't let this be a stumbling block to you. However, if you ask me, I think it's historical. Really quickly, look up here on the screen, three reasons why I think it's historical. One, it doesn't read like a parable, not much at all. It uses a real historical character, Jonah, and and it's kind of unheard of to use real historical characters in parables. It has a complex storyline, not a simple one like most other New Testament parables. And if it was a parable, get this, it'd be one of the longest parables ever in the history of the Bible. It'd be the longest parable in the Bible. Parables in the New Testament are usually very short stories and to the point. This thing is like 48 verses, 4 chapters long. No, it doesn't really read like a parable. And then adding to this, the second reason I don't think it's a parable is that we have some historical evidence for Jonah as a real person and prophet in Israel, as well as this book as historically credible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, or 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, it mentions Jonah, the son of Amittai, as a prophet in Israel during the reign of, reign of Jeroboam II around 780 B.C., In Matthew 12, verse 40, Jesus mentions Jonah, and he mentions him as if it's a historical figure that he's talking about. And even further, the story of Jonah mentions the Assyrian capital of Nineveh, which was a real place going all the way back to Genesis 10, and we even have outside sources that attest to Nineveh being a real place. You see, folks, there's way too much historical evidence outside of Jonah about Jonah to see it as a parable. And then thirdly, and probably most to the point, is that just because the story contains something miraculous, like a man being eaten by a whale and then spit up on dry land, doesn't mean that it didn't actually happen. You see, a lot of times the big argument against Jonah is is that it can't be true. It's got to be like a, a fairy tale type thing because, you know, whoever gets eaten by a whale lives and then gets spit up on dry land. And yet the reality is, is that if you deny that a miracle like that could actually happen, then what are you going to do with the rest of the Bible, right? What are you going to do with the Exodus event where God parted the Red Sea? What are you going to do with Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal where the fires come down from God? What are you going to do with Jesus' entire ministry of miracles? What are you going to do with the apostles and all the miracles that they did? 
I like how C.S. Lewis once said it years ago in his book, Miracles. He said, look, it, it all comes down to the resurrection. If God can raise a man from the dead who's been in the grave for three days, then everything else in the Bible falls into place, right? In other words, if the resurrection happened, and Christians do believe it happened, obviously, then everything else is possible. So though it might be improbable that a guy might be eaten by a whale and spit up on dry land, it's certainly not impossible when it comes to God. No, I think it really happened. I think Jonah was a real-life prophet in 780 B.C., based in Jerusalem. He was called to preach about God to Nineveh, and that this is a true story about that account. But again, even if you don't buy into that, you're still going to get the same message out of this book, so hang on to your pew and get ready to hear about some truth about God and you. So, second question, what's the point then about Jonah? What's the story really about? Now listen close, folks. I want to make this really clear. This is important. This story is not about a whale and vomit routine. It's not. Uh, the whole whale and vomit routine is found in only three verses in 48 verses out of four chapters. Let that sink in a minute. Only three verses talk about Jonah and the whale. It can't be the main point of this book, even though this is what most people think of when they think of the book, Jonah and the whale. No, what this story is about is God and his relationship with humankind. You're going to love this story. It's an intimate, grace-filled story about God giving a call to one of his servants, Jonah, to give a tough message to an erring group of people, the Ninevites, and how this servant runs from God and how God pursues him. And it's a powerful story filled with some clear words on how to know and find God when you and I are running and trying to get away from him. This is a story of grace and of God's stubborn love with those that he calls. And so with that long introduction that we needed to do to get a few things under our belt before we could move on, in our time remaining this morning, I want to share with you just a couple of things that I want you to notice as we get into this story over the next four weeks. It's going to set the tone of our whole look at Jonah over the next four or five weeks. And to do that, I need you to turn to the book of Jonah right now. It's about two-thirds of the way through the Old Testament. We're going to look at just the first three verses in Jonah to get our feet wet in the book this week, but it's going to set the tone for where we're going the next four or five weeks. And if you didn't bring a Bible, we've put the Scripture, I believe, on your outline. As always, we're going to put it up here on the screen as well. But if you have a Bible, open up to Jonah now. It's kind of a hard book to find in the Old Testament. So, like, if you're still searching and looking, look in the table of contents. And, and, and here is the main point that we need to get established, and that is that Jonah ran from God, and we've been doing likewise ever since. Are you ready to own that with me today? Jonah, as we're going to see in just a second, ran from God, and what I'm going to suggest is that you and me have been doing likewise in various ways ever since. So notice with me how this account begins. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Jonah chapter 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And now, folks, what you need to know is going on here is what we call a classic prophetic call, well, one that happened all the time in the Old Testament when it came to God's chosen mouthpieces. You see, what God would do is he would choose somebody like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, 
Daniel, Malachi, Zechariah, lots of different prophets, and he'd tell them something, many times verbally, literally, uh, to tell the people, uh, to tell the people that they wanted, he wanted them to know. And sometimes it was an encouragement, and sometimes it was a warning. So when it says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, it simply means that God had spoken to him, clearly and without a doubt. God did that to prophets back then, and they were his mouthpieces for truth to tell his people what to do. And notice with me specifically here that God is telling Jonah to go to the capital of a non-Jewish, non-believing country, Nineveh in Assyria, and to tell them that what they've been doing is wrong, and that God is absolutely not pleased with them, and to stop doing it, and to seek God. You see, Nineveh is in present-day Iraq, northeast of Israel. I'll show you on a map a little bit later. And it was destroyed in 622 B.C. However, in Jonah's time, about 160 years earlier, it was about 780 B.C., this guy named Sennacherib is the king. And this man was bent on world domination. He was a self-absorbed king. He called himself the great king. And this country was about as decadent as any country could get back then. It was like another Sodom and Gomorrah. Crime, immorality, severe sexual deviances were all running rampant. It was a godless country. I think the best example I could give you was that it was akin to a modern-day Amsterdam complete with its red light districts and brown cafes. Nineveh was like modern-day Amsterdam. And God was simply asking his prophet Jonah to go there and to tell them to stop doing these things and to get right with God through seeking him and learning about him or else. And so Jonah, hearing this call from God, knew that it was a clear word, a word that a prophet would be given by God to tell some people. And in ironies of ironies, Look at the response that Jonah had to God's grace-given message given to an erring nation here. Look at verse 3 of Jonah 1. It says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Kind of an unusual response from one of God's chosen mouthpieces, wouldn't you say? Have you read the Bible? I mean, Isaiah never had this response. Ezekiel never responded this way. Daniel, Zechariah, Amos, all the other prophets, whether they're the major prophets or the minor prophets, never responded this way like Jonah did. They never ran overtly from God's call. And yet, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, this is what makes this book so unique and even relevant and practical to you and I today. Two things I want you to notice in our time remaining that will be very important for our deeper look into Jonah. Two things that Jonah does here that I'm suggesting you and I do as well. First, notice that Jonah ran from God and to something else. He ran from God and to something else. This is very important for us to see. Look again at verse 3, and let me read it this time with some emphasis so that you get the key parts. It says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, and so he paid the fare, went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Focus on those phrases, 
flee. And then that twice repeated phrase, from the presence of the Lord. You see, Jonah, it's obvious here, is running from God. It says he fleed. Twice it says from the presence. That word presence here, the presence of the Lord, is a very unique word in the Hebrew Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word panim, which is used all the time. It's a far-ranging term, but the reason that I say it's unique is in its most naked form, it literally means the face of someone. Isn't that interesting? It means the face of someone or something. And so what it's saying here is that Jonah, who had been looking at the face of God, hearing his word from him, turns from God's face and starts to run away from him. You and I do that on a human level. If we don't want to hear what somebody says and they're talking to us, what's the most rude thing you can do? Turn away from their face and say, I'm not listening to you anymore, right? In a very figurative way, that's exactly what Jonah is trying to do here. He's trying to get away from God's immediate relational activity, from God's involvement in Jonah's life. He's running from his face, from God's call and activity in his life. As if that's even possible. Think about that, folks. If God is truly God, can we actually get away from him and turn our face from his face and run from him? You're right, Jerry. No, we can't. I, I don't know if Jonah ever read the Psalms. They were written about 300 years before Jonah's time, so there's a chance he read the Psalms. But David kind of settled this issue 300 years earlier when from his own experience he wrote this in Psalm 139. He says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? Panin, same word used in Jonah here. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is the underworld hell, underworld hell, you are there. He says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness isn't dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. What's David saying? He's saying, I've tried all my life at times to run from God. Can't be done. He's God. He's everywhere present. You're not going to ever get away from him. And yet Jonah is exactly trying to do that. Like a child trying to get away from his parents in a busy mall, but the parents right on top of it, right? Where'd little Johnny go to? He's behind that rack of clothes over there. I see him hiding right now. That's what's happening here in this story. Jonah thinks that he's actually going to get away from God. God, as we're going to see next week, says... I don't think so. But he's going to try to run anyways. His fallen, fleshly human nature is bent on running. And so notice that as he's running from God, he's going to try to run to something. This will be important for us here in just a minute. And notice that in Jonah's instance, he's going to try to run to another place. Simply put, Jonah is going to change geography in order to get away from God, literally hightailing it out of Dodge, or in this case, Jerusalem, and heading the other way. And it's actually quite fascinating when you understand the geography here to see what Jonah did. And I want to show it to you up on the screen here right now. So, so look up here on the screen. Uh, behind the screen here is an, an old world map in the, from the Old Testament times of the, uh, the Holy Land. And actually, the Holy Land is that, that red line that goes north and south there, that little strip along the Mediterranean Sea there. That's the modern-day Holy Land, Israel, Palestine today. 
And uh, back then, they had many of the same cities. You got Jericho and Jerusalem there in the south, and then you got Joppa along the Mediterranean Sea and, uh, and, and all that stuff. And then you got Galilee up in the north there. And we know, that you see that blue arrow there, that that's where Jonah started. He was in Jerusalem at this time. Now, give me another click here, guys. Uh, that arrow there, all the way up to the far northeast, give me one more click, is where Nineveh is. It's the capital of Assyria. Give me one more click, guys. It's the capital of Assyria. In other words, what I need you to see is that Nineveh was far to the north, far to the east for Jonah. That's where God was asking him to go. It'd be like God asking you and I to go to preach to Nova Scotia from here today. You guys know where Nova Scotia is, north of Maine there? So if God said, I want you to preach to those erring Canadians, and I want you to go to Nova Scotia, that would be kind of geographically the same call that Jonah got. Give me another click here. But this is where Jonah went. One more click. He went the exact opposite direction. Isn't that interesting? In other words, he went over to that little coastal town, Joppa, and he was going to get on a boat. We're going to read about that next week. And he's going to head as far west along the Mediterranean Sea as he can go. I need you to see this. God says, go this way. Jonah says, I'm going that way. Ha, why? To get away from the presence of the Lord. He's going in the exact opposite direction that God calls him to and the furthest possible point in the known world at that time away from where God wanted him to go. Jonah is running from God and to anywhere that God might not find him. But it's not going to happen. We're going to see that next week. I've entitled next week's message, Still Running from God. And we're going to see next week that you really can't do it and that God does some amazing things when we do run from him. But before we get to that, I want to leave you with one point here today that I want us to really think about and apply to our lives. You ready for this? And that is that we all have a tendency to run from God. I think that's the point of the first three verses. We all have a tendency to run from God. And I mean all of us, each and every one of us. You know, it's fascinating. When you look closely at the book of Jonah, there's actually two sets of runners mentioned here. You got Jonah, who we've established is running from the clear call of God. And then you got the Ninevites, who are obviously running their whole lives from God by living sin-filled, faithless lives. But I believe that there's a third set of runners written in the margins of this book, and it's really the point of the book, and that is you and me. I, I think really the intent of this book being written in God's economy was so that you and I would read it, identify with the main characters here, and for Christians it would be Jonah, and saying, you know what, I'm like Jonah a lot in my own life. By implication, I think the third set of runners in this book is us. And though most of us don't literally change geography like Jonah did when we run, though I've known people who have done that, we run in other ways, however. We have our own tried and true, perfected over the years methods of running in which we too try to avoid God's activity and call in our lives. In our time remaining, I want you to consider just four examples, four methodologies on how many Christians tend to run from God today. Look up here on the screen. First, we run by continuing in old patterns of behavioral sin that we know keep us from walking with God the way he wants us to. In other words, we remain in unchecked behavioral sin patterns that keep us from fully walking with God. And all of you know what I'm talking about. Those nagging sins of thought and action that we know are not God's will for our lives, but we do them anyways. Some of us stuck in them for years, 
And we do these things as a way of finding relief for our aching souls, but we end up running from God in the process. And I'm talking about everything from gossip to anger outbursts to pornography to abusing substances to cutting moral corners in our businesses to telling lies to falling into a materialistic lifestyle. I mean, we all know the list. And the reality is, is that we need to own that for some of us, our drug of choice when it comes to running from God is simply to persist in these unchecked sinful behavior patterns of our lives that we know keep us from God. As I mentioned earlier, we were, um, part of what I did over the last few weeks is, is lead a, a great, great retreat of our men up in Williams, Arizona. I had 450 of our men go up, and it was just an absolute blast. And though we agreed that what happens in Williams stays in Williams, so I can't tell you too much of what happened up there, the reality is, is that there were some profound spiritual things that happened, and I don't think the men would mind me sharing a few of them. We had guys come to Christ for the very first time. We had about two-thirds of the guys recommit themselves to embracing God's sovereignty for their lives and submitting to his sovereignty in their lives. We had a wonderful discussion on anger, uh, as only men can do, that Saturday night there. And as many of you know, one of our, our teachers that weekend was Tom Schrader, who's the pastor of East Valley Bible Church. And i got to tell you, a, a subtle but profound moment for me was on Saturday morning when Tom was just talking to all the men about their lives. And at one point, he simply said, let's just get honest, men. In this room right now, there are plenty of men who are having massive problems with pornography and even having affairs in their marriages right now. And the second he said that, all the shuffling in the room stopped. You could literally hear a pin drop in the room at that moment. And I thought to myself, you nailed it, Tom. You're getting close right now to what a lot of the men are struggling with in their lives. He put his finger on the issue. And the reality is, is that all of us have certain nagging sins that we just can't seem to get over. And some of us, because we've kind of given up on them or not taken them very seriously, have used these as a way to run from God through our unchecked sinful behaviors. Some of us need to own this today as our running of choice. And I'm going to give you a response to this in just a few minutes. But before we get to that, notice a second way that I think many of us try to run from God, and that is that we run from God by avoiding relational intimacy with him. This is the second way we run from God, avoiding relational intimacy with him. In other words, we shut down relationally with God. We stop praying. We stop reading the Word. We stop seeking Him actively in response to maybe some disappointment or a call in our lives. We've abandoned the old quiet time, our regular devotional life, where we met with God regularly to seek Him and relate to Him as our Father. And we've shut down internally and just gone on our merry way. And folks, I've got to tell you, this kind of running is so insidious because it's not that we've abandoned the Christian life altogether. And so we look so good on the outside, but on the inside where only you and God see, you know that you're running from Him. And, and so you still attend church, you still go to Bible study or small group or enrichment class, we still serve in our regular service commitment, but we've stopped relating to Him. Internally, we've shut our heart and our mind down. And as a result, our prayers are cold, our Bible readings non-existent, our active seeking of Him is, well, not so active anymore. And all I know, folks, is that when I run from God and I do, this is the way I do it. It is. 
fascinating thing happened to me last week, and as I mentioned, I was up with um, a family group, um, a group that supports and promotes the family, a Christian group up in, in Colorado, uh, just help working with them on the fundraising part of their weekend. And, uh, and at one point, uh, Tim Kimmel, who runs this organization, had a, a lot of us break down into small groups, and he simply asked us to share in our small group um, why it is that we shy away from sharing spiritually with our kids and our spouses. And I was in a small group with Kim, my wife, and just two other couples. And, you know, as they all went around, they all said what would be predictable to say. They all said that the number one thing that keeps them from sharing intimately with those around them spiritually um, is time. That they're just so busy. And they have so much on their plate that they just can't seem to carve out the time to do that. And it got around to me, and I didn't mean to diss anybody's answer, but I said, you know, I just got to speak personally for me. I can tell you right now, it's not time. I said, don't get me wrong, I'm busier than probably all of you, and I could use time as an excuse, but I find that I tend to have time for that which I want to do. If I want to watch Law & Order, doggone it, I'm going to watch Law & Order. If I want to go work out, believe me, I'm going to find time to work out. If I want to do something with my hobby, golf or something like that, believe me, I'm going to be out on the course golfing. I find that we're all that way. We're busy, but we are going to carve out time for that which is valuable to us and that which we prioritize. So I don't think time's ever an excuse. I said, no, for me, I can tell you right now, my wife's about ready to nod her head yes and yes on this one. I said, the reason that I don't share intimately and spiritually with my kids and wife at times is because I just can't stand intimacy and it terrifies me to the core. I'm a man. And I said, an intimacy is revealing, it's unmasking, it shows me for who I really am. I'm wringing my hands as I even talk about it right now. And I said, and I don't like to be unmasked, and I don't like to have that kind of depth. And I'm not proud of it, but I'm just telling you, I run like the plague from that type of thing. I, I said, that's what I do, and I fight it every day of my life. They looked at me like I was from Mars. They were like, and you do? And I thought, no, men, don't fool me. I said, I know that most men can understand that. My wife sure gets it. And I find that I do the same with God. I don't know about you. But I find that one of the reasons that I run from Him is because prayer is such an unmasking activity. Have you ever tried it? It's very revealing. You're, it's just you and God. You're stuck there right before Him, revealed for who you really are. And Bible reading is like really probing. Have you ever tried it? It, it like says things to you. You go, I don't want to hear that. You know, I mean, that's kind of convicting. You know, and, and, and fellowship with other believers, we're going to see, is, is, is kind of a difficult activity at times. You're like held accountable for your life. I mean, we run from intimacy. We run from that kind of activity. And some of us need to own this today. Keith Green, uh, the great songwriter who died years ago, once got real honest in one of his songs, and he said this. I love it. He said, my eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, and my prayers are cold. And I know how I ought to be alive to you and dead to me. And all I know is that I've sung that tune a lot over the years. We run from God through our avoidance of intimacy with Him. And for some of us, it's our drug of choice when it comes to how we run. Now, if that's you, hang on to that. We're going to help you put that, put something to this today. Uh, but a third example of our methodology that we use to run from God, like Jonah, is uh, that we run from God by hearing His call to do something. I love this. And we just say no. And some of us need to own this today. This is probably the closest to Jonah that we're actually going to get. In other words, we hear God's call to do something. He, he tells us to share our faith with a lost coworker, neighbor, or family member. Or maybe to give some financial resources to a needy person or a ministry. Or, or maybe to humble ourselves and reconcile a relationship that needs to be reconciled. 
or maybe even to take a risk and join a small group or service opportunity that we know is going to cost us some relational capital in our lives. And instead of responding to a resounding yes to these things, we inwardly say, no, God, and go on with our lives as if nothing has ever happened. We run from God by saying no to his still, small voice that speaks to our spirit something that he wants us to do. And I find that Christians, especially veteran Christians that have learned to listen to the voice of God, do this a lot. I don't know if you caught it, but a couple months ago we uh, planted a church out of this church over in Fountain Hills called North Chapel, where Dan Scruggs, one of our elders, who is a great elder in good standing and loves his church, uh, said I, last spring, I really want to plant a church in Fountain Hills. And I don't know if you caught it, but he was so public about it, he said, you know, the reason he wanted to plant a church is that five years ago, five years ago, God spoke to his spirit very clearly saying, Dan, you're 60 years old, you only got a few years left, maybe 20, 30, and I want you to spend it by planting a church. And Dan said, what in his spirit? Did you catch it? He said, no way, God. I don't want to plant a church. I'm pretty comfortable at Scottsdale Bible Church. It's going well, and I'm about to be an elder, and yada, yada, yada. And the reality is, is that over the last five years, Dan was kind of miserable in his spiritual life. And he came to us as elders last spring, and he said, I've been just running from God for five years, not heeding his call. And guys, I, I just have to respond to him. What do you think the elders say to something like that? They say, of course we will. I mean, we want you to respond to God as he leads you. And gosh, you're gifted, and you've got a men's ministry in which you teach all the time. How can we support you? And that's why we sent Dan off. And I was so proud of both his honesty and authenticity, as well as his integrity in following God's call. But I think many of us could tell a similar story of times where we have run from God in our disobedience to his nudging in our lives. So we got behavioral sin. We got intimacy avoidance. We got failure to heed his call in our lives. And then as a fourth example, and this one's probably the most insidious, is that some of us run from God by withdrawing from fellowship with other believers. I find this is a big one for some of us. Hebrews verse, chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 tells us to not forsake regularly meeting together with other believers because we need spiritual encouragement as we band together with them in little platoons that study the Bible and pray and serve and do life together. But think about it, folks. Sometimes when we are running from God, we cop an attitude and we withdraw from others, other believers whom we know that we need to grow in our walk with God with, and we end up not going to church for a season or avoiding Bible study or small group or hanging around with anybody that would remind us that we're followers of Jesus. In other words, I've seen this happen a lot to good-hearted Christ followers. They become islands in their spiritual lives, remote and on their own. And by doing, they avoid accountability, they avoid encouragement, they avoid spiritual input, and they're running from God in their heart of hearts by running from his vehicles of grace around them. Some of us simply run from God by shutting off others, spiritual others, whom we know that we need to draw close to God with. Truly, folks, I've never met anyone yet who at some point in their lives, at some way or another, has not run from God and his activity in their lives. We either continue in sin, we avoid intimacy, we say no to a call, or we just shut out other believers. So many ways that we run. But one thing is for sure, we're all just like Jonah. Every one of us can relate to this book. Isn't that so cool? People tell me the Bible is boring and irrelevant and they just don't get it. Not with Jonah. You're going to find that this book hits to the core 
of who you really are in your intimate walk with God. And I'll just wet your whistle. This book is going to show us a lot about his grace. It's going to show us a lot about what God does when we run from him and the grace-filled, awesome response that he has. Don't ever forget this, folks. God is a God of second chances and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh unlimited grace from God. And Jonah's going to teach us this. Now, I mentioned a few minutes ago that um, we're going to end today's service by helping you uh, in, in, in your running. And uh, one of the things that I'm learning as your pastor lately, and God's just really hammered this home to me more so in the last couple of months, and it's for another story, but he's really hammered home for me the power of prayer. I, I'm an activist. I'm a, I'm a strategist. I'm a visionary, all that stuff. But sometimes when you're wired that way, you can also forget where your core dependency is and how helpless you really are when it comes to especially spiritual and relational things, changing things, and that really prayer is the power behind it. And so instead of giving all of you runners a bunch of tips today, which we're going to learn some things in Jonah, what I thought would be powerful is that if I ended the service by praying specifically for each group of runners here today. So what I'm going to ask you to do is that if you identified with one or more, hey, can we get those lists back up there, guys? Thanks. I'm going to ask you, if you identified with any one or more of these four things, I'm going to ask you in groups to stand up here in just a minute. So if you identified with unchecked behavioral sin patterns, I'm going to ask you to stand. If you identify with avoiding relational intimacy, I'm going to ask you to stand. If you identify with saying no to his clear call, stand. And I'm going to pray for each of you by groups as you leave here today. Now, let me make one word of, about this before we do so, because I just know how many of you think. I know how I think. There are many of you here today that relate to number one, but you're going to be really reticent to stand, right? Because you're going to think that the person next to you in your pew is going to go, I wonder what their sin is. Am I right? I mean, that's how I'd be thinking if I were you guys. I'd be like, oh, well, I relate to number one, but I'm not standing because this person next to me is going to judge me and think, wonder what his issue is. Uh, let me put that one to rest by saying this. I want you all to hear this. I'm going to stand with you on number one. I don't have sins in my life that would disqualify me from ministry. I don't mean that. But you'd be kidding yourselves if you didn't think that your pastor has areas in his life that he's wrestled with for years that he's not proud of, that, that, that block my walk with God at times that I don't need prayer for. My gosh, you'd be foolish to think that. And so the reality is, I stand with you on number one. I stand with you on number two. I don't stand with you on number three only because I'm a pastor and I've answered the call and I answer his call all the time. And I certainly don't stand with you on number four because I'm paid to be with you all week long. And so I can't get away from you all even if I wanted to. So there's good reasons that I don't relate to numbers three and four, but I'm with you on numbers one and two. And I sure empathize on number three and four. And I think we all need prayer. Amen? So let's have every head bowed right now. Let's just all bow in a moment of prayer. And uh, if you relate to number one there, if there's some areas in your life, some behaviors that you know have just gone on too long that you need to, to, to have prayer for so that you might stop running from God and walk with him, I want you to stand right now. Stand with me if that's you. Okay. With every head still bowed, let me pray. Father, I, I just thank you that we have such an honest church. I, I thank you that there's good-hearted people here who have a level of authenticity that are not afraid to stand uh, when it comes to what they need prayer for in their lives. And, and Lord, I got to believe that every one of us here in some ways can relate to Jonah where we hear a call from you and we just hightail it the other way. And Father, some of us have learned to run from you by just persisting in behaviors. Maybe we feel stuck, stuck in them, but we persist nonetheless that we know block our relationship with you at times. 
and it's the way that we run. So, Father, I pray for these folks right now, and I pray a couple things over them. First, I pray that as they are held in Christ, as they have become followers of Jesus, that they would know first and foremost that their sin is forgiven. Lord, without forgiveness of sin, we'd never change. And so I remind them, as Jeremiah says in Lamentations 3, that your mercies are new every morning, and that includes them. May they sense and feel your forgiveness in their lives. And Lord, secondly, I pray that from that forgiveness, that you might uniquely fill them in such a way with your spirit that they might sense some power and strength as they depend on you to enter into this thing called repentance. And that, Father, as we are praying over them right now, that even this week they might sense a renewed passion, a renewed power to have victory over the things that hold them back. I pray that you would grace them and bless them that way. I pray you bring them people in their lives that might help them with these things as you brought people in my life over the years who've helped me in areas that I'm stuck in. And I pray, God, that you would just grace them with a sense of your presence and that they wouldn't run from your presence, but that they would bask in it and draw strength and power in it. Lord, we lift them up to you. We pray you'd give them victory in these areas so they might stop running at times from you and learn, as we're going to see next weekend, to run to you. You guys can be seated. For any of you that relate to number two there on relational uh, intimacy avoidance, I want you to stand right now. I'd like to pray for you. And again, I stand with you on this. Why don't you stand? Father, um, again, I, I, Lord, I can't tell you how much I relate to these folks who are standing right now. That as a man who has feared intimacy much of my life, and one of the most intimate things we can do is relate to you. And so, Lord, there are plenty of times where I know I need to be alone with you in my prayer time or just quiet and still before you. But as one author says, that silence is deafening. It's terrifying. And so, Lord, we just get busy and we avoid intimacy with you. And yet, Lord, we know that's not healthy for our souls. We know that that does no good for our hearts and our minds. And so, Lord, I pray for these folks who are standing here right now. And I pray, God, more than anything, that you would give them courage. Lord, what I've known I need over the years is courage, in spite of the fear moving forward anyways. And I pray that you'd give them courage when it comes to the intimacy issues. I pray, Lord, too, that if there's anything that blocks them in their intimacy, whether it be developmental issues, childhood issues, fears, and all that, that you would unearth those. And that, Lord, as you unearth them, that they would be able to recognize them and pray over them and, again, have courage to move forward in spite of them. And, Lord, lastly, I pray that as they do move into those scary places with you, that, oh, Father, you would show them that their fears are unfounded. That as you've shown me that there is grace and mercy and hope and peace to be found, as we draw closer to you. We pray this in Jesus' name over them. You can be seated. For those of you who have heard God's call like our friend Dan did in some area of your life and given a resounding no, I'd like you to stand right now. And I'd love to pray over you. Father, this group is the group that relates most pointedly with Jonah. They've heard your call and they've uh, said no at certain times. And Lord, we don't know in a group this size what those calls are, but we know they're varied, but we know that they're clear. And so, Father, as these folks, again, are just coming clean today and being very honest with you about the call that they've heard, I pray, God, that uh, you would grace them with a sense of your goodness and your pleasure, that you love them, that you're for them, that as we're going to see next week, that you, you chase right behind them even when they're running. And I pray, God, that uh, you might also give them the courage and the uh, fortitude and the passion to say yes. That, that, Lord, as you did with our friend Dan, that, God, you would... Bring them to the point where they say, I'm not going to run anymore. I have to heed his call because life and joy is found in following God. And God, I pray that they'd be able to do that. Just grace them with a sense of your goodness 
and uh, also with the courage to say yes to you today, we pray in Jesus' name. You can be seated. And then lastly, for those of you, and I know this is a bit of an oxymoron because you say if I was withdrawing from other people, I wouldn't be here today, but maybe you just happen to wander in here today that if you tend to run from God by withdrawing, would you stand right now? I really want to pray for you. If that's you today, please stand right now. Good. Let's all join in prayer. Father, I thank you, Lord, for those who are standing now and for their honesty about their temptation to be isolated and to be somewhat island-like in their walk with you. And Lord, one of the things your word makes very clear is that we all need you so desperately when it comes to, we all need each other so desperately when it comes to walking with you. And so God, like I prayed for the other groups, I pray that you would give this group of people some courage. I pray that you would give them the fortitude and the passion, even the patience to move into relationship with other people. Lord, some of them have tried and just gotten in with groups that, that they just didn't feel an affinity with and it, it wounded them. And so God, I pray that you might give them a good experience as they enter more into relationship again. And, and that, Lord, even though Christians can be so hurtful, Lord, surround them with some Christians that would love them and care for them and be Jesus with skin on to them. Father, I pray that you would draw them close to you by drawing them close to others and that you would bless them that way. Would we all stand right now? Father, as we go, now in the name of your son, Jesus, we thank you for the journey that we're about to embark on when it comes to this book, this story called Jonah. Speak to our minds and hearts. Draw us close to you. May we get to the end of this book having learned some things that truly could be transformative, life-changing in our spiritual walk with you. And I pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. God bless you guys, and I'll see you next week.